So, uh, yeah, good evening and uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Ben Teo. I am the Library Lifelong Learning Coordinator with the City of Marion Libraries. Um, and as we get started, firstly, I would like to acknowledge that the land we meet on today is the traditional lands of the Ghana people and that we respect their spiritual relationship with their country. We also acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide region and that their cultural and heritage beliefs are still as important to the living Ghana people today. Um, this evening, we're so happy to have people back uh, at a library event. You can see things are slightly different, but uh, it is fantastic to see so many faces um, a lot of people we haven't seen for many months who come to these events, so it's really, really good. Um, so please, as, uh, just be conscious of the physical distancing as well. There will be book sales and Victoria will be signing um, books after the session, but please, uh, we encourage you to keep your distance from each other. Um, but of course, uh, tonight we are pleased to welcome Victoria Perm tonight. Victoria is a best-selling author of numerous novels for adults. She's a regular guest at Writers' Festivals and, of course, one of our favourite local Adelaide authors. Um, Victoria is here tonight to talk about her latest release, The Women's Pages, a beautifully realised novel that, seeks to the, uh, that speaks to the true history and real experiences of post-war Australian women. Um, after the event, you will have the opportunity to purchase Victoria's books um, in the foyer thanks to Shakespeare Books. But please join me in welcoming Victoria Perman. Hello, everyone. Oh, hello. Familiar faces and strangers. It's lovely to see. Oh, hello. Hello. You know, standing here, you look like you're all about to sit an exam. <laughs> Um, I really am so um, chuffed to be here tonight um, and as the first person back after the coronavirus restriction, so please put your hands together for Marion Library staff who do an amazing job. Um, Jane Webster, Ben of Bentio, of course, and Tracy Noah, who's not here tonight but has been doing all the wrangling behind the scenes. I really appreciate the support they've given me and I'm, I'm just so thrilled to be back. I think the last, one of the last times I was here, um, Leanne Moriarty was here, packed. I feel just as happy to see all of you. Um, I'm here tonight to talk about oh, this beautiful book. Um, and I'm just talking about the cover, actually, not what's inside. Um, oh, before I go any further, I would like to also acknowledge Shakespeare's bookshop, by Becky and Mike, who are here today as well. They've come to numerous events that I've spoken at and uh, to sell books, and it's great, and I really appreciate it. And if you don't follow them on social media, if you're a social media person, they have the most beautiful bookshop dog in the world called Holly, who's a black Labrador, and they just post photos of her all day, so... It's one of my favourite things to do. Um, the coronavirus has been really difficult. There's no doubt about it. And it's really changed everything about what we've done this year. Um, fortunately, and I, we were just saying before, I feel so lucky that we're in South Australia because I wouldn't want to be in Victoria. And, and I've, we've got friends and family over there and I think it's been really tough. Um, and it's, for some of them, we've got friends who live in West Footscray. So they've been in lockdown even longer than the whole of Melbourne. So it's, it's been a struggle and I think it's going to take a long time to recover. So let's just thank our lucky stars we are where we are, I think, and that we can do things like this because certainly they can't in Melbourne. So I feel very grateful to see all your lovely faces here tonight. Um, 
the, this book was originally going to be released in April, but coronavirus put that back when no one back then really knew what was going to happen and whether stores would stay closed a lot longer. So it's felt like um, having a child who's about to leave home uh, and they just, oh, just one more month, just one more month. So I'm really so excited to see the women's pages out there now. Um, Coronavirus actually hasn't meant that much of a change to me because I spend a lot of time hunched over a keyboard at my desk um, and I've, I've written now for eight years and I have 16 books. So it's been a long time of hunched over a desk. Um, this year was going to be um, a big year for my husband and I. We're going to go overseas for the first time in 10 years because the kids are grown now. And so I could research the book that I'm writing now, but all that um, changed, obviously. So we got a dog instead. Um, her name's Maisie and she's a golden retriever. And I'm not here to talk about Maisie the golden retriever, but she's absolutely gorgeous. And if you follow me on uh, Victoria Permanent Author on Facebook, you'll see photos of my dog. It's beautiful. But things like that have just kept us going, right? Those of us who have dogs or those of us who are lucky enough to get them all. And books have kept us going too. And um, I know so many libraries sort of pivoted really quickly and have done all sorts of things to keep people connected with books. Um, and and other and, and each other during this time, and have tried to create online communities so people can can just connect with others. And you know, Marion Library's been brilliant at doing that, and I've taken part in some of those things. Um, the Land Girls was my first bestseller, which was very exciting. It certainly wasn't. An, I'm not an overnight success. I've been writing for a while now, and uh, was chosen as one of Australia's um, top 100 favourite books, which was just so fantastic. Um, if people have read it, they'll know that that book ends on VP Day, that is Victory in the Pacific Day, August 15th, 1945. And my land girls' um, career in the land army was over and they went back to their homes. And when I finished that book, I couldn't let go of that idea about what happened to women after the war. We kind of had this idea that women gave up their, willingly gave up their careers and put down those tools in the munitions factories and all the, all the jobs they'd been doing for the, to replace the men who'd gone and, and happily said, oh, no, I'm going to go and have babies now and stay home. And that's how the baby boomer generation was born. And there'll be people in this room who are baby boomers. Um, but that's not quite what happened, actually. And I wanted to pursue that. I, I didn't want to follow the same characters because I loved the way I'd wrapped up their stories and I wanted to, you know, discover some new characters. But something that I read, one of the land girls at the end of the war said, I just couldn't settle down. And I thought that was a, a code kind of phrase for I'd had a better life, I'd, I'd earned my own money and I'd had independence and I didn't want to let that go. So I kind of took that feeling about the, the Land Army Girls and I, I poured it into this book. Um, this book will take you on a journey with my character Tilly Galloway in 1940s Sydney through the months after World War II. It, I open up the book where the Land Girls finished so I open up this book on uh, VP Day um, and Tilly Galloway's a journalist on a Sydney newspaper. I've, I've made up a newspaper called the Daily Herald but I based it on things that I researched about newspapers of the time. Um, she's a Wharfie's daughter from the wrong side of the tracks in Sydney um, who gets lucky because she's smart and lands a job as a secretary to the uh, news editor on the paper. And she does that for a few years and she builds up... She, she spends that entire time watching 
the paper and seeing how the journalists work and how the business of the newspaper works. So when um, men enlist um, during World War II to become war correspondents, because that was very glamorous, and, and any reporter wants to go where the story is, and, and one quarter of all male reporters left to become war correspondents. So the papers were desperate. They had jobs to fill. And when they're desperate, they finally relent and let women do some of the work. So literally in newsrooms, the, the bosses would look around and say, oh, OK, you know, you're not, you're not too bad. You're a bit smart. You know how to type. Um, you know what a deadline is. OK, you can have a go at uh, reporting in the newsroom. Um, men got their jobs because they were friends of the news editor or someone went to school with someone else or that kind of thing. So women were getting all these opportunities and, and I put Tilly in that role. She's a secretary. Um, one day she's out having coffee with a girlfriend and um, there's a robbery and she rushes back to the newsroom and tells her news editor all about the robbery, knowing full well that if she does a good job, he might remember. And he does remember and he gives her a job as a reporter. She works really hard and eventually becomes the paper's first war, female war correspondent. And the reason she's so driven to do that is because her husband is serving, but he's been missing for three years. The last she heard of him, he was, he's in New Guinea, um, and he says, don't worry, I'm a Japanese prisoner of war, but they're treating me well, and then nothing for three years. So that was her motivation for wanting to become a war correspondent, really to find out what happened to her husband, Archie, and is he dead or alive? She, she doesn't know. Um, so she lands into this world. She's finally appointed a female war correspondent, so she thinks she can go and report this big story, but women are not allowed anywhere near a soldier. There were a group of female war correspondents in Australia who worked for Australian publications who went and interviewed land girls, uh, munitions, factory workers, um, uh, other women who were doing um, jobs for, you know, for the war effort, but they were not allowed anywhere near acting, um, active service or soldiers at all. They didn't interview one bloke. And they were incredibly frustrated by this. But the army um, said, what are we going to do with women? There's nowhere for them to sleep. Uh, we can't send them to Darwin or we can't send them overseas. It'll, the men will be distracted. Um, you know, we hear those arguments today, ladies, don't we? So she, she feels enormous frustration at this. And so when... But in the newsroom, she's not really treated any better either. The, the research I did, and this happened even in the 1970s here at the News in Adelaide, for those who remember that newspaper, there was a women's newsroom and a men's newsroom. And if you were a female and you got a job, you were still working with the other women in a separate section, sometimes even on another floor. And the men in the newsroom said, oh, the sob sisters are downstairs. Um, they thought that women were too soft. They couldn't cover hard stories like crime or politics or even sport. And those of us... I, I was a journalist, which is, I suppose, why I'm interested in this, but when I started, there were certainly very strong views about what women couldn't, could and couldn't do. And um, I remember being a journalism student in 1984 and the um, head of SAFM came to talk to us as we were studying radio. Who, who remembers SAFM? I think it's back now. Yeah. Um, so this is 1984 and he was sitting up the front of the class and I said, why aren't there any women on your station? Not one voice, not one re reporter, not one announcer. You know, back, this was back-to-back -back dire straits days, you know. And he said, oh, we've done research and listeners don't like the sound of women's voices. 
So I, I sort of thought, oh, there goes that option as a career, you know, got to strike that one off, I can never work there. Well, of course, how fantastic that's changed. And I was interviewed by Indira Naidu on ABC Nightlife last Friday night and I was talking about this and she said, do you think things have really changed? And I said, well, the fact that you're speaking to me and I'm a woman's voice on the radio, I think we've come a long way, not that we're there yet. So there were very, very fixed uh, role, fixed ideas about what women could do and women did the cookery and the social scene and fashion um, and the advice column and um, that's the kind of world I created. So when the war ends, Tilly is relegated, as she sees it, to the women's pages with the other women, which she's not that happy about. And I just want to read a little bit where I, I sort of set up what it's like in the women's newsroom. If the smell of woodbines drifted across the floor, it was Maggie who smoked incessantly at her desk while she transcribed from her shorthand notes stories of the wartime crimes and misdemeanours of the populace of Sydney. Nothing seemed to faze Maggie. She didn't blink when covering bodies dragged out of the harbour or backyard abortionists arrested after the death of a patient or raids on upmarket gambling dens or men arrested for willfully and obscenely exposing themselves in a public lavatory, often in the new men's toilets at Lang Park near Wynyard Station. If something smelt delicious, it was Vera, who'd been experimenting with another of the ration recipes she insisted her colleagues judge before she put them in her column. The best, by popular acclaim, had been meatloaf with boiled egg. The worst, by a unanimous vote, was choco marmalade. With one taste... Tilly had vowed to never eat marmalade again until it was made from real fruit, even if that meant she would have to wait until the end of the war. The women of the Daily Herald worked at the oldest desks in the building and typed their copy on typewriters with the stiffest keys, which Maggie swore were as old as the paper itself, and ribbons that had been turned over so many times that if they were held up to the light, stories announcing the beginning of the war might be seen. I have to explain that one to young people because I don't know what a typewriter ribbon is. They were surrounded by the detritus of life on a busy daily newspaper. Old reporters' notebooks, torn pages scattered near ashtrays and stained teacups and crushed cigarette packets. Wartime information booklets telling the women of Australia to eat more lamb, to do it for the boys, to make do and mend, reminding them that loose lips sink ships, to keep their legs closed and deny men regular intercourse to banish venereal disease, to refrain from drink in case it might lead to intercourse to keep a clean home, to ward off infection, to not be too nervy lest it affect your children, and to get your share of air and sunshine. The men may have carried the major burden of fighting the war on foreign shores, but the women had carried their own burdens at home. There was nothing surer. So, so that's the place where Maggie, I'm um, sorry, Maggie, where Tilly finds herself among these women, who she's initially very sceptical about because she's not, she says, I want to write about what women do, not about what they wear. But that, her view changes as the book progresses because she, she starts to see how important women's stories are. Um, but her life's in turmoil, really. As, and she she's lives in Sydney, and, and Sydney was in turmoil, as was the rest of the country. Um, she's in limbo. Her job's ended. Her husband is still missing, presumed alive or dead. She doesn't know. Um, her father, the Wharfie, is on strike. And, and in, the, those, in that immediate time after the war, Sydney was in, actually in turmoil. 30,000 workers were on strike to, to keep their pay in conditions. There were power blackouts. 
So people had put up with everything during the war, rationing and black, you know, blacking out their windows with curtains, and then there were power blackouts. Um, so people weren't happy. The cost of living was, an, was skyrocketing, and people hadn't had pay rises for a long time. Uh, and those, so war widows were left with little support after the war too. So they were struggling to say, well, our, I gave my husband and my children gave their father for the war and where, where does that leave us? So there was a lot going on socially and I kind of wanted to reflect all of that because I, don't, I, I certainly had the view that the war ended and everyone was happy and went back to their normal lives. It wasn't like that at all. Um, she lives with a, her best friend whose name is Mary and Mary's husband comes back from Changi, um, a very changed person because of what he experienced. And I used... Um, he probably doesn't know it, but I, I don't name him at all. But when I was touring with the land girls in uh, New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria and Canberra last year, I met a man in Nowra and he was in the days when we could all gather a bit more closely. And he listened to... I was talking about the book and the land army. And he didn't say anything, but afterwards he came up and, and bought a book and I was signing it and he said, oh, um, I know about uh, what happened after the war. And he had tears in his eyes. And he would have been late 70s, I guess. And he said, um, when my uncle came back from the war, he was in Changi and he came back and lived in the family home. There were housing shortages then too, so people bunked in together. And he said, and he came and shared my bedroom and, and one night I, he took off his shirt and I'll never forget the scars on his back. And he was crying about it. And this was almost 75 years before. So maybe he was in his 80s. But it was so profound for me that things we didn't talk about and things he certainly was, it still upset him so much. And I thought about the terrible secrets that people kept after the war. And women were supposed to keep those secrets too, you know. They were told, make a nice home for Bill. Um, he needs help and he needs a, a calm, peaceful house. Don't let the kids upset him. If there were kids he might not have seen in six years. Um, so what was that like for those men coming back after all that time, especially the prisoners of war and then... Um, women who'd been without their husbands and children without their fathers for all that time. So I wanted to kind of flesh that out as well. At, at um, Dimmick's last week, when I did the official launch, someone told me afterwards their grandmother thought they'd lost their, her husband in the war and then he came back at the end. She thought he was dead. And she actually got married to someone else. So she was put on trial for bigamy. That's welcome back. There you go, ladies. Thanks for your sacrifice as well. So she, he, for all intents and purposes, she thought he was dead after that amount of time. So, And these stories just, you know, they linger through families, I think. And, um, you know, there's, um, there's family stories. My cousin Diane's in the front row. Her father served in World War II and, and so did um, her uncle, my husband's uncle. Um, and, I, you know, we always wonder what did they go through but they weren't encouraged to talk about it either and the, the idea was to get on with your lives just move on and don't talk about it and it'll it'll deal with itself but we know that, that was not true so this is the this is the world that Tilly's in in 1945 her her sister as husband is in the navy and he hasn't come back so all these women are on their own um, and I created stories for them and I don't want to say too much about 
the, the narrative for all those characters because I don't want to give anything away. Um, the research was so brilliant for this book. I, that's one of the things I love to do. And last year before, when we could travel, um, Stephen and I went to Sydney. Um, and I've been to Sydney lots of times, but we we kind of picked out places where I wanted Tilly to live and where her, I wanted her family to live. Um, and I decided that she would live in Potts Point, which sounds pretty fancy, and it is pretty fancy these days. Um, it's just out of... For people who know Sydney, you walk up to King's Cross and sort of turn left, and that's Potts Point, and there's a... At the end of the point, there's Catterball Naval Base. Um, and in World War II, a lot of single women lived there because after World War I, a lot of apartments were built for the widows and single women of World War I whose husbands or partners had died or who never married um, because they, there were just so few men after those terrible losses. So I put Tilly there in, her, in an apartment with her friend Mary and I, I got to stand on the street and look up and decide that's the building she's going to live in. I conveniently put her across from a nightclub, <laughs> which is a real place, was a real place and is still there today called Roosevelt's. Um, and in the war, it was, it, was, it was called Roosevelt's to get the Americans to come, and they did, and they had lots of money. And they, so the Americans romanced their Australian dates at Roosevelt's, and it was full of uniforms, um, and the photos of the time are just fantastic. It looks like the most swinging place in Sydney. Um, now it's a very exclusive cocktail bar. And our friend Mark, who uh, grew up around King's Cross, um, took us around, and we tried to get in for a drink, but it was full, so... Um, but it's very swanky now. So we walked around that whole area and, and then I did some research of the time and, you know, things, these things really helped me create the world. Like across the road where there's a shoe shop now, which I also found very interesting, um, was a perfumery, a French perfumery during World War II. So that led me to think, could they get French perfume in World War II? I mean, were the French making perfume in World War II? Uh, and I found out they weren't. So that's a, just a little side story I put in the book too about what did, what did the blokes do who wanted to romance their, their girlfriends? Well, they certainly couldn't buy French perfume. If they called it French, though, it was a lie. Or well, they'd been sold something. God, God knows what was in it. Um, and dry cleaners were on every corner back then because people didn't... Uh, the, 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 the fabric of clothes was so heavy, you, you wouldn't wash it. Or you would wash the... You know, women had the little sweat pads under the arm, so you'd wash those, or men would have detachable collars so they could have those laundered separately. So all these things create, helped me create this little suburb. And then I wanted to uh, put her in uh, a place as a child. So her, that's where her family lives. She's extremely close to her family, her, her wharfy dad and her mum, who's a bedrock of the local community. So we walked from Potts Point through King's Cross, right through Sydney, around the rocks to Miller's Point. Does anyone know Miller's Point in Sydney? Yeah, it's, it was... It, there's a famous strip there which is now sadly all gone and it's been knocked over and it's now Barangaroo which is full of, I swear they're 100 foot tall um, apartment buildings with casinos and all that. But back in the, between the wars, World War I to 50s was, it was called the Hungry Mile. Um, all those fancy areas now, the Rocks and Miller's Point, and they were not fancy back then. Um, they were where wharfies and their families lived. And they were so close to the wharves for a reason that when the ships came in, the, wharves, the, the ships would sound their horns and the wharfies and the um, waterside workers would know that there was work because it was all, shift, it was all casual. In, in fact, casual is not even the right word. 
The men would hear the horns. They would walk the hungry mile from pier to pier, from wharf to wharf, from gate to gate, and wait to be picked out of the crowd for work. And it was called the bull system because the strongest bulls, the blokes, got, got work. Um, the stevedores were pretty ruthless and they would go, yeah, you know, you, you, you and you and you and that's all we've got. And then so the men would tramp to the next gate looking for work. And, of course, if you were older, it was extremely physically demanding work. Men were injured constantly. They, had, they lost fingers to frostbite. They were lugging superphosphate with no masks, with their bare hands. Um, skins were being imported from South America to make leather and they were rotting and filled with maggots and terrible. There was nowhere for these men to bathe or eat. They were there for 12 hours or longer, as long as the ship was, uh, was unloaded, and then they went back home. So it was really important for them to live close. So those communities were really tight, and that's where I wanted Tilly to have grown up, to really emphasise that, that she doesn't come from the world that she's reporting, the, the social life and fashion and you know, um, the, the, the hoity-toity side of town. Um, and her father is one of those, was one of those bull workers who's a big bloke, but he's now broken down too. So the whole family is struggling, and things don't get better for them after the war either. But it's a beautiful part of Sydney, and I, if anyone's been to the rocks, a lot of that was preserved because unions at the time had put green bands on um, that, all the plans to knock down all those beautiful historic buildings to say, this is part of the heritage of the city. And they were successful, and now it's just a beautiful place to go, and we've walked, we walked right through that whole area as well. So that's really important to me to kind of help create the world that they come from and to make it real. And it's, a, it's, an, it's an excuse to go to Sydney and that was fun back in the day. I have to write all my books back in Adelaide now, which I, was no, no drama. Um, I also... We were lucky enough when we were walking Miller's Point, um, I, I set her house on Argyle Place and we walked along and Argyle Place is, is filled with um, row houses like um, two up, two down kind of... Um, with a with a uh, flight of stairs that goes down from the front gate down into the sort of kitchen, which is lower than the street. Um, and I stood there and thought, this is great. This is where she would live. The wharves are just there. The harbour bridge is at the end of the street. It's this weird optical illusion in Argyle Place. You feel like you can walk to the end of the street and hop onto the top of the harbour bridge. That's how close it is. It's amazing. Anyway, we were there walking along. One of the homes was open for inspection. I thought, this, I can't turn this up, turn this down, turn this opportunity away. So he walked in um, and the real estate agent said, oh, would you like a pamphlet? <laughs> sure. Um, it was on the market for about four million. <laughs> it, was the, it was beautifully done, but it was tiny. I mean, the stairs up and down were tiny, tiny stairs. I mean, I've got size 10 feet. I don't think I could have fit on the stairs, you know. But it, really, it was really great to walk into the house and imagine the kitchen downstairs and I walked out to the backyard and you'll, you'll read all these scenes in the book where um, Tilly and her mum look over the, the chimneys of all the houses behind theirs and um, it's just lovely flavour because you always have to put characters in a place. You know, they don't exist outside of the suburb they grew up in or their family or their friends. And that was all really fun too. I also had to research um, what lipstick colours were available during World War II, um, the, what perfume was around. And looking at old Women's Weekly magazines was brilliant for that. 
because there's lots and lots of advertising in those, um, and what they ate. Um, has anyone, anyone been watching um, that ABC show with Annabelle Crabb about going back in time? I didn't come across minced kidneys for breakfast. Uh, no, it, it had evolved a bit by, by the 40s, I've got to say. Um, rationing was still in place um, at the end of the war and for a few years after. Not as long as... The, the UK had rationing for about 10 years. So things were available just in very short supply. So um, it was the meatloaf with the egg in it and the choco marmalade and those sorts of things which I just wove into the story. Um, I always love looking at the nightlife and what movies people went to see at the cinema, at the, at the pictures as they called them, because that was a huge thing to do. What shows they listened to on the radio and what, what books were around at the time. Um, all that really I love and it's an excuse not to write when you... Oh, what movies were released in 1944? So... And I go to the internet and then I watch a little clip on YouTube and then I get totally distracted. So that's why I love the research, I think. Um, I'm really lucky that the book's been out a week or so now and people have said really lovely things and these are two of my favourites. Um, I felt like I was in a history class reading this and I mean that in a good way. <laughs> I, I take that to heart. That was beautiful. And then uh, someone contacted me on Facebook saying... Started reading Amazing, my late father's family all came from the rocks. His mother, my grandmother, Dolly Bonnet, is a name anyone from the rocks knows and all my great uncles were Wharfies. Love that. Um, I'm a firm believer in bringing to light the histories of people whose stories have never been told and, and so often they're the stories of women. Um, we can't tell the story about our country in, in complete truth and honesty until we tell the story of everyone in the country. Um, that's why I wrote The Last of the Bonagilla Girls too and tried to um, ex you know, shed light on the role the Land Army women played in, in our war history. Um, and I've tried to weave bits of that into this story as well. I think the... We know, we know a lot about World War II, there's no doubt, but... Um, there are certain things I wanted to cast light on. For instance, the treatment of war widows after the war was really terrible. I mean, the, the benefits to them were paltry um, and women were forced into poverty um, with children after the war for this, you know, they'd lost their husband and that, that was just totally wrong and things didn't change for a very long time for war widows. Um, I, as I mentioned, I began my working life as a journalist a long time ago and um, so maybe that's why I wanted to write about a journalist. Um, I have, still have friends in the industry and I think it's a really difficult place at the moment for them to be um, with so many cuts going on in, all over the place. And I think we, we need people to tell stories, um, not people like me who kind of invent them as well, but we need a really strong media and I hope that... Um, people can be cynical about journalists. I hope you read a bit of Tilly and you think, actually, there's a really important role they play. So I just want, do want to point out something about the cover. I can do it here. Oh, no, I have to just point. Um, when my, it's a joke that my publisher and I have. Whenever she shows me the first draft of a cover, I cry. And, and I cried at this one because it was so beautiful. Uh, but she said, look, there's one change we have to make. Um, your name is too low and we can't see her shoes properly. <laughs> so I, I wholeheartedly agreed because I think they're the most beautiful shoes. And if you 
ever see anything like it anywhere, please message me because I, I want to buy those shoes. Um, but I say that because a, a book takes a village, so I do the glamorous bit in my Ugg boots, you know, with the dog, um, for a long time, for maybe eight or ten months. But then it goes to my, my fantastic publisher, who's the first reader, who comes back with suggestions, and then it goes to a copy editor, uh, and then it uh, goes into the rest of the publishing house and the marketing team look at, you know, where it might... Um, how they might sell it or pitch it in to, to um, bookstores. The distribution people deal with all the big stores and the small bookshops. Sales reps like Anthony Little, who's outside there probably with Mike and Becky, his job is to talk to all the bookshops and make sure they have stock and supply and they've got what people, what readers want. Um, of course, books are printed and uh, this one has been, was printed in Melbourne but a lot of books are printed at Griffin Press out at Salisbury. Um, so it's print, they're printed locally and they employ people that way too. And then truck drivers have to drive the books to the stores and the stores have people who put the books on shelves and talk to readers like you. So without all those people and, of course, library, librarians and library staff who, in, who set up events like this, um, which mean I get to come and talk to you about um, books. So I'm really incredibly grateful. Oh, and I must acknowledge Lisa White for the cover as well, the beautiful girl with the shoes. Um, so all these people contribute to me standing here today um, and I'm very grateful. Um, and, of course, I wouldn't be here standing here talking about my book if it wasn't for readers. And I'm incredibly grateful that you, out of all the books in the world, you have read mine. If you haven't, you might after tonight. So thank you very much. Um, we couldn't, we just couldn't exist as an industry if it wasn't for people loving stories, especially Australian stories. So thank you very much. Thanks so much, Victoria. Can you all join me in now? Thank you, Victoria.